Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh33. We only have two hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, and the website spamprimer.com to help you fight spam. And I'm Leo Notenboom, a lover of coffee, corgis, and computers, though not always in that order. And of course, I'm the Leo behind AskLeo.com, helping you make sense of technology and hopefully able to use it with a little bit more confidence after we're done. So, Randy, how was your week? Very good. But in speaking of delicious, delicious coffee, I am I have a little glass here of my favorite Sobieski espresso vodka that I can sip. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have, um, not tonight, but I've definitely recorded um, uh, TEH podcasts with a little bit of alcoholic assistance. No. <laughs> so. so you asked me how things are going this week. Yes. Well, I mentioned last week that uh, we just put in an offer on a new house and it was turned down. Um, any it's an interesting real estate market here. Uh, people sure. think that their houses are worth a lot, a lot of money. Is it worth uh, uh, an, an opportunity to renegotiate the offer or is it just sort of a not going to happen? We're real far apart. So, okay. I mean, we knew we were lowballing it, but, you know, th- this is a house that has um, lots of dogs in it. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I know you have dogs, but uh, your house has carpeting. This house she actually tore out all the carpeting upstairs because it was so soiled. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, things like that. I mean, there's sure. a lot of things wrong with this house and she still wants basically move-in prices. So it's like, right. no, we're not going to give you move-in price. So the search resumes? Well, we do have a uh, another house in mind. Um, it's just not on the market yet. It's a friend's house that um, they are kind of stressed out because the husband is ill and that's why they're moving. Mm. So we're just going to wait. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're not in a hurry. I mean, that's, that's always, always a good thing. Is your, your house on the market yet or? It's it's been on the market for several weeks and uh, yeah, we're not in a hurry until it sells. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a good problem to have, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Sure. So how about you? Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny. This week, uh, speaking of lots of dogs, um, this coming Saturday uh, is oh, yeah. annual Pacific Northwest Corgi Picnic. So we've been slowly ramping up uh, for the onslaught. And how many dogs do you host in your backyard? We will have 100 corgis, roughly 100 corgis running around our backyard on Saturday. Now, the good news is we've done this before. This is actually the 17th annual wow. corgi picnic that we've hosted. Yeah, we've been, like I said, we've been doing it for a while. Um, it's always a lot of fun. We have a good time. As you can imagine, having 100 dogs in your backyard, having 100 people come over, uh, only half of which, as it turns out, we end up uh, actually knowing because we've got quite the corgi community out here. We're always discovering new people. Um, it can be kind of stressful. So it's, there's a fair amount of, of work and stress involved in, in prepping for the thing. Um, but you, you surprisingly don't have many dog fights. 
We definitely take some steps um, to, to minimize that possibility. It's always a risk, but um, it's one of those things where we, for example, um, one of the things that makes our picnic unique is that it's uh, off leash. We, it means we have a fenced yard and the dogs get to run around, but we request people not throw things so that there's not like a bunch of dogs all going after a ball and then you know one of the grumpier ones decides he's going to cause a problem we don't want that kind of stuff happening um, in reality this year it's going to be we've got an added complication um, i know for a lot of listeners um, they're going to say that we're wimps but the fact is we've got we're in the middle of a heat wave here and we're looking at temperatures in the low 90s uh, for saturday which well for uh, seattle especially since it's very humid there that's, that's well exactly warm it's very warm, and it's one of those things where, especially when you're not acclimated to it, um, it's, it can be very uncomfortable. So we're going to be doing things like setting up, trying to set up some extra shade and setting up some misters and a couple more waiting pools for the dogs and, you know, whoever else wants to sit in them. But um, so that, I think, also will help keep, uh, keep uh, things, the energy level, just a little bit lower, and, and so you know, people will still have a good time. And are you expecting puppies? Um, we don't know of any specifically. The youngest will be uh, accompanying our breeder, who I th- we think are like the, in the seven to nine month old range, somewhere in there. So they're definitely beyond the puppy stage. Um, it seems like every year there's at least one person that you know comes off, uh, comes over, showing off their uh, their brand new corgi puppy, and that's always always fun. Um, they're they're just so darn cute. They are incredibly, incredibly cute. And this picnic gets quite a bit of attention. You usually have a news photographer there, and we can put a link to uh, one of the previous. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. We they do make- slideshows. I mean, they, they they get probably you know ten million viewers off of your event. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. The uh, uh, couple two three years ago one of the attendees turned out to be a photographer a still photographer for a local tv station and he ended up publishing a bunch of the photos um, on the tv station's website and then uh, i think it was the next year uh that tv station was of course part of a um you know a larger company and uh, affiliate stations uh, in the pacific northwest you know, for example, you know, Idaho, Oregon, that kind of stuff, they started picking up and rerunning these pictures as well. So all of a sudden I started getting all sorts of hits from, uh, from all over the Pacific Northwest. It's actually quite interesting. I actually haven't heard if um, they're going to be here this year. I'm, I'm kind of hoping they are. They've always expressed an interest. They did certainly when I contacted them um, six months ago when we set the date. But uh, yep, it's, it definitely gets attention, uh, which is, which is kind of fun. Kind of fun. Well, we'll put a link to that on the show page so that uh, sure. you can add to their hit count. <laughs> there we go. So um, the other thing I was going to mention, though, you yep. mentioned um, that you were sipping, um, you know, delicious adult beverage. Yes. I took advantage of the, um, the link you published in This Is True last week to a cold brew coffee maker. Oh, yeah. And mine arrived within a couple of days. I uh, have made exactly one uh, pot of coffee with it. Uh, unfortunately for me, I think uh, it was a bit of, of operator malfunction. Uh, I ended up spreading coffee grounds all over the counter because the actual uh, neck for inserting the coffee for, you know, for putting the coffee into it is a little on the narrow side compared to the way that I normally put my coffee in things. But even so, the coffee was very good. I only let it sit for 24 hours. Uh. 
Definitely. Yeah. That, Definitely. That's what the instructions say. It says eight to 24 hours. Right. They have no idea what they're talking about. So it's, you're recommending how long? I say at least 48 hours. And I actually let mine go. I mean, I, so I have two of these things and I'll, I'll have one brewing while I'm drinking another one. And, you know, I don't necessarily have a lot every day, but sometimes I will actually not need it for five or six days, and I'll let it brew that entire time. See, that's where you and I differ. Uh, I will drink uh, a pot of coffee a day easily. And right. to me, a pot of coffee is not one of these. This is about half a pot. Uh, yeah, it's, so, it's, it's 48 ounces, if I recall correctly, a liter and a half. Yeah. So the other day when I tried it, um, I had my normal pot of coffee in the morning. And then in the afternoon, as I said, it's we're kind of having a heat wave here. So cold brews uh, certainly uh, makes sense that way. Yeah. And uh, I, I polished off that entire thing. So one of these is probably going to do me, but it's going to be one of those things where I get to actually have the cold brew coffee then, you know, once every other day or once every three days or so, depending on how long I let it sit. Well, we'll put the link to that on the show page too. Yep. yep. So, Recommended for folks that like cold, you know, cold uh, ice, iced coffee or cold brew coffee. It's actually very, very good. Well, it's pretty funny that we both came up with the same story for the breach of the week, which is not actually a breach. So tell us about that. Yeah, I went ahead and labeled it an anti-breach of the week, especially since we don't have Kevin here to do a sound effect. You know, we, we can't just have a breach of the week. Um, Krebs on security, which is a very um, highly recommended security blog dealing with not just PC security, but internet security in general, um, had an article running yesterday, I think it was, uh, or maybe this morning, Google security keys neutralized employee phishing. Now, you can imagine that a company like Google is a very, very uh, lucrative target to phishing expeditions. And to be clear, phishing here is a case where somebody sends you a piece of email that looks like it's coming from X, but it's really coming from a hacker. So we see phishing attempts all the time. They're yep. trying to fool you into thinking that they're PayPal and get you to then log in to this fake site that is not PayPal, but actually ends up handing over your credentials. What Google has done is they have required two-factor authentication, actually for a while now, but they recently switched, or last year I think they switched, to a specific kind of two-factor authentication, which uses a USB security key. Now, these have been around for a while. I think they've been around probably for a good three, four years. But you, uh, Google has standardized on those company-wide. And their statement is that across all of the employees across the company, they have had zero cases of successful phishing attempts uh, in the, I think, year or year and a half that they've had this in place. Early 2017, it says. Yeah, so a year and a half. And it's, it's a testament to the fact that adequate security is not only possible, but it actually doesn't have to be that overwhelming. Uh, Two-factor authentication really isn't as bad or as complicated as a lot of people think. And a lot of people find uh, security, so to speak, in having something physical, something that they can understand and identify with as a key. And that's exactly what this is. It's a little tiny USB device hangs off of your keychain. And in order for you to log in, you need to insert it into a USB port on your computer. 
Um, it's actually very cool. The manufacturer of this specific one is YubiKey. I actually have one in my desk drawer. I'm not using it for anything right now because I'm using other forms of two-factor authentication. But it's actually a reflection of what has turned into an industry standard for two-factor physical authentication. I thought that was actually a pretty, pretty cool report on some progress being made against what is honestly a scourge across the entire industry. Um, yeah, you'd like to think that Google employees are pretty savvy, but you know, not all of their employees are engineers. And social engineering, as they call it, I mean, one of the ways that hackers often get passwords is they call random employees on the phone and say, hey, this is Leo down in, uh, in operations. Um, we're seeing something really weird on your account. Um, can you log in and, and see if you see it? What's your password? I'll just log in for you. Right. And very right. often... I mean, yeah. a ridiculous amount of time. The There's, employee says, oh, well, my, my password's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, which don't use that password. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how often that can succeed. Uh, the other thing, though, is that on one hand, it's tempting to say that the employees that you know, would get fooled by something are some of the less sophisticated employees. And that's absolutely not the case. Yeah. The problem is that phishing in particular, while it's taken way longer than I expected, phishing attempts have become significantly more sophisticated themselves and can be very, very convincing if you really don't know what to look for. And even, you know, like a software engineer or an engineer in Google, they may not understand what email headers to look at, or they may not take the time, or they may not, you know, actually take the time or understand exactly what needs to get looked at to confirm that what they're about to click on is, is in fact legitimate or not. So, like I said, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, this kind of a solution, we've been preaching two-factor for a long time, but this is, like I said, some really good confirmation that two-factor uh, really, really does work and can prevent um, accounts from being hacked. And in the case of corporations like this, those hacked accounts then from being used for other kinds of uh, network intrusion. Remember, with two-factor, uh, if I could tell you my password, Right. And you still wouldn't get in. You don't have, in my case, you don't have my phone with you. You must have my phone. You must be able to enter a code uh, in order to uh, log into my account. And in the case of the uh, these physical keys, you must you have to know the password, of course, but you must have that key in your possession. You have to be able to insert it in your machine. If you can't, you can't log in, at least not without some additional preparation that you'll have had to have done beforehand to account for the case where you might have lost the key or in my case might have lost my phone. Right. So there, there are apps you can get for your phone that when you set up this two-factor authentication, which you can do on things like PayPal and even if you have a WordPress site, you can add it to WordPress. And what it does is it shows you a little QR code, a little barcode that you point the phone at and it picks up a key from that barcode and it syncs so that every minute you get a, a new second password. I think it's just fascinating. I first saw this at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory when I worked there. And we were the first team to actually get these things. And at that time it was a really thick credit card sized piece of metal really that had a little display on it. Right. And it changed Every minute. Yep. 
Yep, it's very cool. PayPal used to have one, um, gosh, about six years ago. It was a, uh, I forget whether you, I know you'd call this one a fob because it really is just a little small football shaped device. Yeah, it's um, like a key fob. It's like a key fob. And it just, all it did is it had a number on it and it changed. In this case, I think it was every 30 seconds. Uh, and you just had to enter that number the first time you logged into a new machine. And it's amazing how much security something like that actually provides. Yeah. And, I, you know, from my perspective, you know, being, being the geek that I am, I dive in and I take a look at some of the technology behind it. The encryption behind it is just, just amazing to me. The fact that um, this concept of public-private key uh, um, encryption is really what's behind it all, uh, even though you're not using public and private keys in this case, but it's the same concepts, the same technology behind what's going on. Um, it's, it's just amazing. You, you are encrypting something, and it's the ability to encrypt the same thing the same way in two different places based on this time-changing code that, uh, that's actually really, really fascinating. And the YubiKey, the, the physical devices, they do something almost identical to that, except that they just avoid the part where you have to type in the number. Just having that thing present and having it know the right thing at the right time is sufficient uh, for the... Oh, is that right? I thought they were just completely... Um, yeah passive that that it was just an electronic message it was sending it's it's actually keeping track of time and it's and, actually uh, doing oh gosh i'd have to dive into it a little bit more it's definitely not just a passive device it's not like it's got a static code on it um it's actually uh, doing something i believe it's reacting to your system time i believe it is in some cases when you push the button that's on it it's actually mimicking a keyboard and typing things in Interesting. Yeah, which is very cool. Like I said, it's absolutely fascinating. It's all this little tiny key. I mean, it's you know barely bigger than a uh, um, um, a USB connector, right? There's just a little bit more than a connector to it, with something that's big enough for you to press. Yeah. So, anyway, well, that's, very interesting. You know, that's like I said, it's it's cool stuff. I love to see progress being made in in ter- in forms of security, and then having some results like this to back that stuff up. That this stuff really does work. Well, I've got another one that's sort of a breach, but not really. <laughs> this just kind of goes to show how when you're not thinking about security, you can do really, really, really stupid things. So British Airways asked customers to give them information. But the way they asked them was to post it publicly on Twitter. And their excuse was that they needed this to comply with GDPR, that new European privacy regulation. The thing that's really scary is some people did it. So help me understand, how does posting your private information on Twitter help them comply with GDPR? Well, it doesn't. And obviously that's just really dumb. But that any employee thought that they needed to have customers send personal private information on any public forum is just insane. And that people actually did it is even more insane. Huh. Well, it's, it's, so the fact that people actually did it, honestly, doesn't surprise me. No, it doesn't surprise me and, either. And that's, and that's not really a reflection of what I'd call the average consumer. Because remember, for something like this, it's, it's the same mentality that goes behind spam. It's the same mentality that goes behind 
um, a lot of different scams, the, the tech support scam. If you get enough people, you're going to have a couple, right? And that's often yeah. all you need in the case of spam to make the, to make spam worthwhile. So you could send out a million. If you've got one, it's a positive return for you. But that what that tells you is that in a large enough number of, given a large enough number of people, there's always going to be one or two or however many. So yeah, it doesn't surprise right. me. So, so what this was about was that people, you know, I've, I've done it too, where you, you tweet at some organization to say, Hey, this problem is, is vexing me. I need you to fix it. And it's kind of cool that a lot of big companies monitor Twitter and they have teams to actually get back to these customers, but they're supposed to do it by direct message privately, right. quietly. But British Airways actually replied in public via Twitter to comply with GDPR. Please confirm your full name and booking reference. We also need two of the following passport number and expiry date, the last four digits of the payment card, <laughs> billing address and postal code and or email address. Oh Lord. And first of all, I shouldn't have been doing that right. on their public feed. But second of all, some people just hit reply and gave them the information Yeah. also on their own public feed. Right. Right. Well, like I said, so that, that's how it happened. Yep. Yep. They, they, the people driving that Twitter response, the, from, from um, British Airways, they clearly don't understand how the technology works. Yeah. And I don't need to go real deep into this, but it just gets down to think about what you're doing and where you're doing it. So yeah, if, if they need to confirm your identity so they can help you with a ticketing problem or something, fine. But you don't do that in public. Yeah, I was going to say there's plenty, broadcast. Of, plenty of private ways to do that. I'm not sure if I personally feel comfortable with a Twitter direct message, uh, but um, theoretically that is private. Uh, but like I said, at that point, you're a ticketed customer. They've got all sorts of information about you that you can then use in turn to contact them. So, yep, yep, this is a wild one. I have to admit, I, you know, it's funny. I do, um, when I fly, I typically fly Alaska Airlines, and they too have a, a social media crew that does a pretty good job of responding to the various and sundry comments. But um, I definitely take uh, um, the opportunity to do the opposite. I try and notice when things are going well and yeah. tweet that out too, because the airlines, I know that they get a tremendous amount of negative feedback for any number of different reasons, often justified. I don't want to minimize anybody's issues with it. But on the other hand, you know, there are a lot of hardworking individuals on the ground who, uh, who are doing really good jobs. And I think that that's also a wonderful use of the technology too. Yeah. To don't them. forget to do the kudos. Yep. So speaking of not knowing yeah. what you're doing, so although I'll give this one a little bit of a little bit of slack because I kind of sort of can see how it happens. So in bleepingcomputer.com, another good site for breaking news about security and solutions for security related issues, uh, they have a an article, Cisco removes undocumented root password from bandwidth monitoring software. So Cisco is one of the, in fact, probably the largest maker of routers and other networking equipment around uh, the world. They, chances are pieces of this very conversation are running across Cisco equipment just because- Almost certainly. Are, 
they are the glue that that a lot of places, a lot of ISPs, a lot of networking, you know, networking solutions use to connect their networks together. They discovered through a, a routine audit, actually, that there was a hard-coded password in a device that if you knew that password, you could log into that device as root. I am root. So what that means is root is the equivalent of an administrator account on a Windows machine. As the top administrator account. You have all privileges on the machine that are possible. Uh, there is nothing you cannot do. So as you can imagine, having root access to uh, networking equipment uh, of any sort is a really, really bad thing because, of course, one of the things you can do is not only monitor the traffic, fish the traffic, you know, extract the traffic that's going across the device, but you can also play with the traffic, you know, change what the traffic looks like or where it's going, any number of different things. So that's a really, really bad thing to have in place in, in networking equipment. We've often talked about routers coming with a default pattern password. And for many years, and actually still for many routers, there's a common default password. You, If you know that you've got this brand and this model of a router, then your default login password is admin and a password of admin or something silly like that. Yeah. And Linksys was like that for years and years and years. And Linksys yep. is now owned by Cisco. And but And to their credit, one of the things they now do for most of these devices, they actually take the extra step, it is extra trouble on their part, to give each device a unique password. So you'll find when you get a new router, there'll be a sticker on the box that says, you know, the login ID is this, the password is this, but you should still change it, right? You should still change it to be something that you've chosen so that it's not the default password. This actually isn't that. What they believe is that the password was actually hard-coded into the device as part of its initial or original testing phase. So in order to make some aspect of the test process um, effective or even possible for all we know, the engineers at that time hard-coded in a password for root that allowed their tests or whatever to actually gain root access and then test the device at that kind of level. They just forgot to remove it. And as a result, these devices are out there you know, with this vulnerability. Now, fortunately, these aren't necessarily consumer-level devices from what I understand, uh, but they are definitely the kind of device where the there is no workaround. There's nothing you can do. This thing exists, whether you like it or not. And they, of course, have provided a patch that they recommend uh, the uh, network engineers, the IT people, install eh, as quickly as they, they can. Right. That, that is the, the workaround. You have to install this patch. And they actually issued 25 security updates to, to help address this. And uh, it received a rare severity score of 9.8 out of 10. That's yeah. pretty bad. I'm not sure what it would take to get a 10, but yeah, this is pretty bad. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, to get a 10, maybe it would be broadcasting. Here's my root password. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. yeah. Or maybe it would be 10 if we actually knew. One of the things the article doesn't mention is exactly what that root password is. And it's very possible yeah. that Cisco has not exposed it to anybody. They just discovered it themselves and they're fixing it themselves, which is exactly what should be happening. 
the fact that it's there in the first place is the mistake, but how they're handling it seems to be very well, very well thought out. But, um, you know, if that password were actually out in the wild, eh, then perhaps it probably deserves a 10. So I think the bottom takeaway for this, even for our listeners that aren't network engineers or anything else is once in a while, log into your router if you haven't changed the password, do it now. Mm-hmm. And when you log in, look to see if it says, hey, there's a new firmware update. I do that once in a while. In fact, I logged into my router about three nights ago, and the next day you posted something in your newsletter saying, I'll bet you you haven't looked in your, at your router for you know years. It's like, right. actually, I did last night. <laughs> and w- while I was in there, it said, you know, there's, there's a new firmware, and I was just able to update it right there from my phone. I looked over at my wife and said, are you online? If you're doing something, <laughs> it's going to disappear for about five minutes. Right. Right. Um, and she gave me the thumbs up and I hit the button, but you got to do it. You got to go in there and look because it doesn't usually have a way to inform you that there's something new. And so you I, need to log in and check once in a while. Go ahead. I, I wish all routers did what yours does. Cause I'm not sure that many of them, I shouldn't say many of them, certainly not older ones, they don't check. Just logging in isn't enough. You actually probably need to take the extra step of looking up the version number, going to the website, doing the comparison, that kind of a thing. More and more routers are doing what you suggest. And in fact, my router, which is provided by my ISP, it does it automatically. In other words, that they push out firmware updates to the router. I don't have to do a thing. It happens whether you want it to or not, yeah. Right, and unfortunately, they they can't, there's no way for them to know when's a good time. So they right. usually, I'm sure, pick the middle of the night or whatever. But uh, it's unfortunate that they can't, you know, allow me to choose the time because, you know, again, being who I am, there's always something going over the wire. Uh, but the uh, the article that you probably stumbled upon of mine was one, or just a recommendation to periodically reboot your router. Yeah, routers are one of those things that we just don't think about ever. They just kind of sort of work for the most case. Until they don't, yeah. That we just sort of ignore them. And a year later, the thing's still running. They are complex devices. They are are small computers with operating systems, usually Linux. And they can uh, benefit sometimes from simply being rebooted to to clear out memory fragmentation or, or just, you know, change the state so that they can work a little bit more efficiently. I've, I've definitely have heard of people's intermittent connectivity problems going away after they've rebooted a router. So it's just one of those things I recommend once a month, but whatever. Well, there you go. So I'd like to move away from stupid tech or people acting <laughs> stupidly with tech and talk about something cool that actually has nothing to do with computers per se. Per se. Um, there was some uh, planetary scientists that were uh, looking for the supposed planet X. They, they think there's a, another planet out beyond Pluto. They, they see some perturbations in the, in the orbits of some planets, which they think might be due to another planet and its gravity pulling on the orbits of these other planets. So these, these guys were uh, using their new camera to look for, this planet, it's going to be really hard to find because it's really way, way, way out there. And they happen to notice that, hey, we're pointed right at Jupiter. So let's take some pictures of Jupiter. 
And the funny thing is, they discovered 12 new moons orbiting Jupiter. Now, we've been there with spacecraft before. Galileo was there. And you'd think that a spacecraft on the scene that's orbiting around and taking, you know, hundreds of thousands of pictures would have found these moons. But no, these are entirely new moons, including some really interesting ones. Some of them are very, very tiny, like a mile in diameter. Right. Um, but we found more moons from here, not by sending a spacecraft out. And the one quote I really like is, this is a great reminder that when you build up the capability to study one thing, you never know what else you might discover along the way. Yeah, secondary consequences are, are pretty amazing sometimes. So this was an, um, I have not read the article. I'll be uh, upfront about that. Was this an optical, uh, like a telescope type thing, or what were they using? I believe so. Um, I, I don't really know about this tech because I, they didn't go into it a lot, but I'll, I'll post a link to the, uh, to the article. It's actually a National Geographic of all things. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, the, uh, um, it's, the reason I ask is, depending on the kind of technology that they're, that they're looking with, uh, you know, we may have so far outpaced the technology, for example, that was installed on Galileo because how many years ago did that have to get, you know, launched? What was the state of the art at that time? Um, they may have had uh, significantly uh, less resolution or, or less capability than we might take for granted today. Right. Galileo was launched in 1989. So it, it's been a while. It's been out there for a while. Yeah. So, so the, the real question is. And it's not out there anymore, just to be clear. Yeah. The um, uh, planet that they're looking for, Planet X. Yeah. It's, um, they, given the perturbations of the other um, uh, planets that they've been seeing, do they have an idea of where to look? I think vaguely they they do. It's not, you know, the entire ecliptic that they need to look at, but um, I, I don't think they really, really know because they probably would have found it by now if it exists. Right. But um, they, they, I think they have a, a general idea just based on what you said that this perturbations in the, in the orbits. It's, a, it's an interesting problem. Yeah, and, You know, this whole thing that you, you never know what, what else you might discover along the way, I think is the theme for the entire space program. Exactly. Every time yeah. we go out and look at something like going out to Jupiter, uh, Voyager found on Io a volcano. And actually it was some 25-year-old um, scientist on, you know, early in their career that happened to spot it. But, you know, who would have thought that a moon, which they basically thought would be completely geologically dead, would have volcanoes. Right, active volcanoes. It's volcano. the first time we've ever seen a volcano off, off the Earth. Yep. So you never know what you're going to find, and that's one of the good reasons to go out there and look. I also like the other secondary effect, which is all the problems you solve or all the solutions you come up with as you're solving other problems. So much of yeah. the space program is reflected in the stuff that we have in our hands and in our, you know, in our lives today here on Earth, you know, that, that never left the planet, but it's here because the space program had to solve this other interesting problem over here. Yeah, NASA has a name for it. It's called spinoffs, and they actually published this 
big publication every year on the spinoffs that came out of their research and their work. Yep. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yep. Yep. I agree. I agree. So I wonder if they had a really high resolution camera here. Probably so. How's, how's that for a segue? Yeah, I stumbled across this one this morning. I thought it was so cool. Uh, Sony has developed a 48 megapixel uh, uh, sensor for photography. Now there's, there's two things that are pretty cool about that. One, uh, the, the specs, I don't, I don't know exactly what the, you know, height by width kind of resolution that turns into. It actually depends on how they design the sensor and what aspect ratio and so forth. They but it's big. What I can tell you is that 36 megapixels, so 12 megapixels less or one quarter or three quarters of it, is a 7360 by 4912 pixel image. Uh, that's actually the uh, sensor in the Nikon I run. I have a Nikon D810. And, and, this, and this is a DSLR. This is not just some little point and shoot right, camera. This, this is a this is a, a fancy and and I have to say expensive camera. Takes awesome pictures. Very happy with it. But it's it's you know it's it's only 36 megapixels, whereas this new uh, sensor from Sony is going to be 48. What's interesting to me is that the 48 megapixel sensor is targeted at the cell phone market. In other yeah. words, there are going to be phones probably within a year or two. Uh, with these incredibly high-resolution cameras that, uh, once again, are going to be threatening or at least encroaching on the territory currently occupied by high-end cameras, high-end optics, and so forth. We've seen that already with, uh, I think, the Google Pixel and the Google Pixel 2, actually. They um, have very uh, good reputations specifically for the camera in the phone. They take very, very high quality photos. It's pretty amazing what you can do with those. Uh, and that's actually threatening. Like I said, it's encroaching on some of the more traditional um, DSLR and, and um, even some of the other higher end cameras. And I, I, will, I will push back a little bit on that because the sensor is only one piece of the puzzle. Um, it is. You know, you're comparing, and, I, and I'm not faulting you at all, but we're talking about a cell phone camera that has a lens made out of plastic that's about the diameter of a pencil eraser. Yep. Versus, you know, these finely ground glass, beautiful, multi-element, you know, big diameter yep. no, lenses I, I, that, you, that, you, that you slap onto your Nikon. You're absolutely right. But um, the, the big difference is that everybody's got their cell phone with them. Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons that we're seeing so many more photographs and videos making their way onto social media or, or wherever photos happen to show up. Heck, I was, I was, I don't know what kind of a mood I was in this morning. I was at Starbucks. I just decided, you know what? I'm going to take a picture here and see what arty kind of thing I can do with it. And um, I did that, but I did it with my phone. And I've actually pushed it up to, uh, to my Flickr account. We'll give you a, a link if you want to. But um, it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, if I had waited for my uh, SLR, for my, for my Nikon, that picture wouldn't happen. 
but as it is, I just had the opportunity to do it, and I did. Um, you're, yeah, you're, and, I, and I criticize a little bit, but you know, I used to carry a pretty decent pocket camera. I, I have a Fanny pouch, so I think you do too, um, and would keep a camera in there. It's one of the things I had. And I you know, took very nice pictures. Yep. I don't bother with that anymore. Same here. Because I have such a good cell phone. Yep, the cell phone is fine. Now, I will say, one of the changes that I made to my own video setup here for Ask Leo is that uh, I had been recording some video here using a, a Logitech uh, webcam. Webcams, I, I put them, you know, kind of, at the same level as current cell phone cameras. They're very high quality. Um, they solve a slightly different problem, but they do a very good job at solving that problem. And for and many- they're very tiny. For, they're very small. And, but for many things, they are perfectly adequate in terms of you know, video quality. A webcam is really all you need to have a video call, right? For example, if we- Well, and they're, they're very often HD quality too. The HD or even better, like the, the Logitech Brio that I have been using is actually a 4K um, video if your machine is up to it. My machine currently isn't up to it, but that's it. But that's, it's pretty amazing. Again, the, the, the resolution that you'll get out of it. Definitely has other issues with respect to, you know, lighting and sharpness and, and any number of things, but it's serviceable. However, I decided to uh, try going back to my Nikon, in this case, a D5300 that I used for video. And it definitely does a significantly better job. As you pointed out, there's a significant difference between shooting through high quality plastic and shooting through incredibly high quality, finely ground tuned glass. <laughs> so, right. so there's, there's definitely a difference here. But what I think is interesting about the Sony approach, the Sony sensor, is not as much for just what it will end up being, because it's going to be cool. It's going to be in some devices, probably Sony devices. But again, it portends the arrival of the next level of sensor for any number of different devices. Because remember, in the back of my, DS, my Nikon, in the back of your Canon, there's a sensor. It's the same kind of thing. The difference is what's in front of it. And I suspect that a lot of these higher, higher resolution sensors are going to make their way to the, um, uh, to the high-end market eventually. Anyway, it's a, just another amazing case of progress that I just find very, very uh, interesting. Uh, and know. to loop it around, yes. do you know where that sensor came from in the first place? Yeah. Kodak invented it for spacecraft. Really? So, th so these probes can take pictures, digit get them digitized instead of um, using film. Because yeah. literally, <laughs> early on, spy satellites, for instance, had canisters of film in them. They would go around, they'd take the pictures, they'd you know, finish up the roll of film, and the satellite would, here's a phrase you like, poop out the film <laughs> canister. And... It would get down the atmosphere and it would pop a parachute and to make sure the bad guys didn't get it, they would have a plane that was equipped with a little hook and scoop type thing that when they, they'd fly up to the parachute and snag it out of the sky. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. And then some of the lunar probes that were going around the moon before we, uh, went, you know, want did our uh, our flight to the moon with with humans would literally 
have an onboard chemistry lab that would develop the film and then scan it and then send that back. Interesting. And, you know, clearly that's not ideal. It would be a lot better to have something that you could put a lens in front of and point at what you want to take a picture of and have it digitized directly and immediately. Kodak invented it and then couldn't quite grasp how to commercialize it and not die. But when yeah. film died, so did Kodak. Yeah, Kodak is a really sad story in that way, just because of, they made so many inroads with respect to photography in general, and apparently even you know inroads into the very technology that ended up dooming them. But um, they're also a very good case study in uh, not paying attention to the way the world is going, sticking to what you know, when in fact it's time to move on. Yeah. So let's talk about another kind of tech. And I, th I think this is kind of interesting, but there's tech, there's a lot of tech behind this podcast and how we do it. And I think it's kind of interesting and fun. And I thought we should uh, just kind of go over how we do it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's, I think I did a uh, uh, behind the scenes kind of a thing for the uh, Ask Leo narration videos, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that was, you know, definitely people express an interest in exactly what goes on, how the sausage is made is the way I described it. Right. Well, and it, it starts with, I think for all of us, fairly high level professional microphones. Right. I've got an AT2020. In fact, I think I have the same one you have, if I'm not mistaken. The, the USB plus? USB plus, exactly. So I can actually hear myself through my headphones at the same time. Yeah. So you can plug the headphones directly into it and that way you can hear yourself and I can hear Leo through my headphones directly from the microphone itself rather than going through the computer's sound card. And the reason for that is there's no delay. Because exactly. if there is a delay and you're hearing yourself, you know, with, you know, even a tenth of a second delay, it's really disconcerting. It's really hard to to focus on what you're saying because you're getting this echo going on right. into your right. ears. The fact that it's coming back to you on any kind of a delay, and it doesn't even have to be a tenth of a second. It can be significantly smaller than that. It's amazing how sensitive the human ear is to those kinds of changes. And how sensitive the brain is to that kind yeah. of interruption. Yeah. That's just so. totally unnatural. So what kind of headphones are you running? Uh, I've got the Sony Studio Monitor headphones that um, they're both comfortable. They're they're made for a recording studio, so they're they're very high quality. They block out you know outside noise pretty darn well, and um, they're comfortable to wear for long periods of time. Right. So I mean, we're only here for an hour, but then you know I go in and I do some uh, either Gary or I, depending on on who's. Uh, producing the show that that week um add the you know the music in the beginning and things like that so we're, we're wearing the headphones for you know usually a couple of hours right i've as it turns out i didn't realize you were using these same headphones that i have <laughs> oh no kidding yeah in fact well, i've got i've, I've got put a link to it on the show page yeah i've got two pair of them uh this is the newer one that i'm i'm running right now i've got an older pair down at my desktop which is in another room that um, they're actually old enough that the lining on the inside is starting to deteriorate. Mm. So, but yeah, they're very comfortable and they, uh, they do a good job. So then the technology behind us being able to talk real time, even though, you know, usually there's four of us, uh, Gary's in Denver, Kevin is in Portland, Oregon, 
I'm in Western Colorado and you are in Seattle, yet we can talk real time, all four of us and, and, and more if we really want to do, and record it. And we use Zoom for that. Zoom. And, and Zoom is one of these, yeah, Zoom.us. It's, it's one of these teleconferencing software, so you can do webinars and thing like, things like that or group calls. And we just you know, got a professional account on that so we could record it and schedule meetings and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of, and, it's kind of funny. I was looking at it last week, and the, uh, they have a free level. Yeah. And the big thing for us, uh, specifically the TEH podcast, that prevented us from just using the free level the entire time, a 40-minute time limit. It's hard. I think it's even 20, yeah. And it's hard to do a one-hour podcast in, in 20 minutes. or even 40 minutes, yeah. Although, although I think it was Gary mentioned this to me last, last time I was chatting with him. We could insert a commercial break and start a second recording. But no. This, <laughs> Good point. Yeah. But we this, don't, and be thankful for that. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the, the real question is, you know, why do we do this rather than just using some of the other solutions that are out there like Google Hangouts, Google Talk, or Skype, um, which we definitely use. I mean, Skype, for example, is how Randy and I coordinated uh, getting this thing started this evening. And um, I think the answer there is that this particular software not only does a really, really good job, but it's actually optimized specifically for exactly what we're doing, multi-host podcasting. You'll notice that, and I've listened to our podcasts in the past, our, the, our voices are all at the quality that they're being heard by the microphone. There's so many podcasts where you have a remote interview and the interviewer sounds great and the remote person sounds like they're on the telephone. Whereas, and sometimes they are. Well, sometimes they are, but sometimes they're just, they just happen to be somewhere else using different technology. Yeah. Um, so Zoom seems to do a really good job of, uh, you know, making sure that we all sound as good as we, uh, we possibly can. And one of the other things it does just as a matter of default is if one of us is talking a little bit less loudly, it kind of balances that and, and makes us, at least it tries to make us both at about the same level. Right. So that it's not painful that one of us is really quiet and the other one's really loud. Yeah, that was interesting because we, we actually, before we started recording tonight's podcast, we had that as a small issue. I, it sounded like I was you know, speaking softly, which is rare for me. And uh, what it turns out is that Zoom just hadn't caught up with me yet. Um, it's actually the application that I'm running on my machine here that is doing essentially automatic volume leveling and making sure that I'm at a, a reasonable uh, audio level for the, uh, for the conversation. And part of it was I had to adjust my, uh, my microphone a little bit. It has a balance between my voice and the remote voice. And it was just tilted a little bit too much on my end. So I could hear myself really well and I could not hear Leo as well. So I just bounced that a little bit. It's one of the things that's built into this microphone, which is kind of cool. And uh, was able to get Leo much more at a, a much more comfortable level so that I could hear him. Now, in my case, I happen to be running this on my MacBook Pro laptop. I know that Gary runs a Mac, and I'm sure that Kevin runs a Mac, but you're not running a Mac. I have had Macs in the past, and I am a Windows guy. And so I, this is Zoom running on Windows. 
So it it's completely platform agnostic. I couldn't have told you you were on a Mac or a Windows. Right. You would sound the same no matter which computer you were on. Yep, bits or bits, audio especially. Yeah. So then Zoom also records it, and you can choose to record it onto your own computer. I choose instead to record it directly on Zoom's servers. So it can, you know, it has it can do all the post-processing there, which by post-processing, I mean that, that balancing we were talking about. And then I can download it and add the music. And you know, if we make a really bad flub, we might edit it out. But that's really, really rare. We like to do these, quote unquote, live to tape. And what you hear is what you get. This is what we're saying. And if we have to say, um, once in a while, you're going to hear it. It's interesting because the phrase live to tape is wrong both ways. Right. Um, it's not live by the time you hear it because there's nobody but us listening to this as we record it. Um, and it's most definitely not tape. But not anymore. Thing. It used to be. What, and um, live to tape came from things like The Tonight Show back in sure. the old Johnny Carson days where they would literally just record it straight to videotape and then uh, yeah. pretty much cut in the commercials and, and go. We've been pretty pretty good. This is, what, episode 33. I think there's maybe only been one case where we've actually had to cut something out. Um, but it's, Yeah, I think uh, it was me flubbing the intro. It might have been. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we may have had a false start once or twice, but uh, but for the most part, we definitely try and keep this real, so to speak, and and have it uh, have it be as natural as possible. What um, what editing software are you using when you actually lay in the uh, the intro music and so forth? So both for this podcast and my my own podcast, this is true, has a podcast called Uncommon Sense, and that's recorded in a different way. It's done in studio and I use a digital recorder for that. And so I have different microphones because these uh, AT2020s that we're using are USB. And the other kind is called XLR, that's a studio microphone. And you can also get an AT2020 in XLR. And in fact, I have two of those and those plug into this digital recorder. And either way, I then lay that uh, resulting audio into Audacity, which is the industry standard for this kind of stuff. And it's free software, and it's remarkably capable. It's um, incredibly and powerful. I think that's what you use too, isn't it, Leo? When I do audio editing, which is actually isn't very often these days, um, it's definitely Audacity that I use. It's, uh, it's funny. Do you remember Cool Edit? I remember it. I don't think I ever actually used it. If I did, it was a very short time. Cool Edit, in a lot of ways, was very similar to Audacity, uh, but it was a product, um, some number of dollars. It goes back, gosh, we may be talking 10 years by now. Um, and the guy who developed it did what a lot of software-developing entrepreneurs want. He found a buyer, and the buyer turned out to be Adobe. And it's, as I understand it, they incorporated it into their uh, creative suite. So uh, for anybody who is who has a subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite that includes things like Photoshop and Lightroom and, and um, you know, a bunch of other tools, uh, if you take a look at their audio editing program, that is the, uh, the son of Cool Edit, which was the industry standard before 
Audacity. And Audacity basically took advantage of that commercialization and, and restriction of the product and uh, did a wonderful job of just being there and being capable and doing the job wonderfully for everybody. Yeah, it's neat stuff. And, and it just shows the sometimes the complexity of software you can get open source for no charge. Now, some people think that you know, to get a really complex program like a word processor, you have to buy it. Well, not necessarily. This is high-end professional audio editing that's totally and completely free. Yep. So then once we um, have the episode, it's encoded to MP3, we upload it to a podcasting service that hosts the files. Now, we, you know, we have a web server. We have a website. We could stick those episodes right on that server and serve it right off of it. But the problem with that, especially if you have a popular show, and I'm not saying we're all that popular, but we do have, you know, hundreds of people wanting to, to download the episode. Well, you're talking about some pretty big files. Um, let me pop in and, and see what a TEH file is. Uh, last week's, for instance, is 29 megabytes. So it's, it's kind of big. And if you have 300 people trying to download 29 megabytes all at the same time, that's going to slow down the server something fierce. So we use a, a service called Blueberry that its specialty is to host podcasts. They uh, probably use Amazon web servers. So they have this distributed uh, file system that's you know all around the world. So if you hit it in Seattle and I hit it here in, in Colorado, it's coming from actually different places. So things aren't getting bogged, bogged down. They're very high capacity to begin with. So we can serve up to hundreds, even thousands, or even 10,000s of listeners all at once without bogging down our own server. And it's kind of neat. I mean, they it's a flat rate for whether you have two listeners or two million listeners. It's very cool. Uh, I actually use Blueberry myself, but I don't use them for hosting. Um, oh, really? I, like TEH, uh, TEH uh, I know is, what you're say. is fundamentally a WordPress site. Yeah. And um, Blueberry exposes itself, so to speak, as a WordPress plugin. And I use it uh, simply as a WordPress plugin to take care of creating the podcast feed and making sure that all the right pieces of a podcast are in place because there's an assortment of bookkeeping that has to, has to go along with the podcast if you want it to be recognized by things like the iTunes store and such. So I use it only for that. I actually host the audio, <laughs> coincidentally, on Amazon S3, on Amazon servers directly, uh, although there's not really a content delivery aspect to it. Uh, that's sufficient. It takes the load off of my server and puts it on servers that are way more capable than mine. And so the, the last piece of the puzzle is how we keep track of what we're going to talk about and in what order. And for that, we use a really high-tech solution called Google Documents. Yeah, throughout and the week, we've got, uh, you know, actually, I should, I say it's throughout the week. The document is obviously there throughout the week. In practice, it's like, oh, we've got a podcast tonight. What are we going to talk about? And all of a sudden, all four of us are banging away at the document for, you know, to come up with ideas and throw some. Throw but the some neat thing out. is we can all four work on the same document at the same time, adding things in if we'd like. We can actually see the other person typing stuff in as it's happening, which is really kind of neat. And uh, 
it was pretty funny because I had that um, Google security keys neutralized employee phishing article I was about to post in and I went to the document and Leo had already post, uh, pasted it in. Yep. So it was like, okay, clearly that's a good thing to talk about because we both think it's a, a worthy story. Yep. So, and I think, and then, yeah, last but not least, we, you know, if we, when someone remembers to, I'm, I'm that someone, um, we post it to, uh, to Facebook and, and I think you've been posting it to Twitter. Yep. I, I basically copy your Facebook posts, sometimes having to crunch it down a little bit because of the Twitter character limit. Right. And, right. uh, and, and tweet it out so that um, but those listeners actually, that aren't using a, a podcast app that automatically downloads new episodes, they see that there's a new episode. They can pop over to the show page and stream it directly from there. Right. And by the way, that streaming, the player that's on the page is another reason that I use um, Blueberry. It's the one that puts the player uh, in place and, and lets you play the thing. Yeah. And Blueberry has this podcast. this plug-in for WordPress that will work with any service. You know, obviously they want you to use theirs, but they don't require that. Certainly not. You can host it anywhere you want and plug in the URL of the actual sound file into their plugin and they'll serve it up whether it's on their server or not. Yep. It's all good stuff. So, so they're really doing a, a service to the community and that's why I kind of, you know, give an extra bit of uh, leeway to do blueberry. Um, I use it for my uncommon sense podcast. We use it for this podcast and uh, you know, all things being equal, I'll just put it on blueberry because sure. it's, you know, the one thing really doing are, a service. The one thing you are getting that I am not, my technique does not get me um, is you're getting like some kind of idea of how many people are downloading. Yeah. Which is another reason it's very difficult in a, in a WordPress site to get a count of how many downloads of any particular uh, file. It's pretty easy to, to say, you know, somebody hit this page 285 times. It's a lot harder to say, well, how many times did this picture that's on the page right. get looked at? If somebody right. else embedded it on their site, would you know how many downloads it got? And the answer right. is no, not without yeah. doing a lot of behind the scenes work that most people don't have the technical chops to figure out how to do. Exactly. Yeah. There, there, there are definitely ways to do it when you've got it hosted on your own site. It's my, my situation is actually worse because I'm hosting it on um, a third party for which I have no uh, reporting ability. So, you know, if you host it on Amazon's server, you can pay extra if you want some kind of analytics, some kind of, of information about what, what files are being accessed. But uh, that's not what I'm doing. So it's completely blind to me. I have no idea how many times my, my audio files, my MP3 files that I host out there are getting you know, downloaded. But we do with this because apparently they're paying Amazon for, for that data. And then they relay it to us. And, yep. you know, it's 20 bucks a month. Oh, come on. It's good stuff. So that was, hey, we're just a minute or so over an hour. We're living up to our name. Well, there you go. So anything that uh, you're planning on doing over the next week? Only thing I can tell you is that there's a bunch of corgis showing up here on Saturday and I'm just going to go nuts. So there's a lot <laughs> involved in that. <laughs> and I'm going to be uh, spreading my um, the ashes of my father-in-law. So... 
Oh, really? Yep. So he died a few months ago, and the family's getting together to uh, sprinkle it in the mountains. So there you go. That's very cool. That's yeah. very cool. All righty then. All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh33. We'll have links to all those various things we talked about and the corgi pictures and other stuff. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, as we just mentioned, at the teh podcast on both services. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. See ya. Or maybe even Monday night, as the case may be. <laughs>